Welcome to episode 12 of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Ray Wilson, professor in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Oslo in Norway. Dr. Wilson is an expert in bioanalysis who uses a variety of analytical techniques in his work, including a lot of chromatography, and I'm really excited that he's able to join me for a conversation today. So far with the podcast, we've had five episodes focused on separation science. Two of these have been with academic researchers and three of them with researchers from industry. With this episode, I'm excited that we're able to deepen the conversation in the area of bioanalysis in particular and in some, uh, I think, really unique and exciting ways. So Stephen, thanks for uh, joining me today for episode 12 of the Analytically Speaking podcast, which is the sixth episode focused on separation science in this new podcast adventure. Thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure to be invited by you, Dwight. Really appreciate it. All right, great. So before we get into talking about your science, uh, I want to talk just a bit about your background uh, to give our listeners a sense for uh, some of your experiences and, and the perspective you bring to the conversation. Yeah. So uh, you did your bachelor's studies at the University of Oslo starting in 1998, uh, focused on chemistry. And from there, you completed a master's degree uh, also uh, at Oslo, mm. and then the PhD uh, finishing, I guess, in 2007 under the supervision of professors uh, Tiga Greybrock and Elsa Lundenes. Correct. That's right. Your dissertation topic was on online multidimensional acid techniques and focused on the determination of known and unknown compounds in limited and complex samples. That's right. Uh, after four years as a postdoctoral fellow, four years, is that right? Uh, yeah, I guess it was around four years. Uh, that might be right. Yeah. Okay. At the University <laughs> Hospital. Yeah. Uh, you began your professorship in 2012 and then now are full professor in the Department of Chemistry uh, at the University of Oslo. Mm. So as I was uh, working on preparing for the conversation, I, I was looking through your publication list, which is about a, a hundred or so publications and yeah. uh, quite a lot of variety there. I, mm. I think more variety actually than most people. Mm. And so I thought, well, ask chat GPT to summarize this for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, Hey, tell me what is his expertise? And uh, <laughs> the ideas that came back with were pretty general, but, but I would say a little bit useful nevertheless. So I, I think it's fun to, to think about yeah. this. So, so chat GPT says that you have made significant contributions to environmental chemistry, chemical metrology, instrumentation, and method development. Hmm. So to make that list a, a little more specific, I would add that you've uh, developed methods for example, in the uh, environmental space, uh, analysis of perfluorinated chemicals in both water samples and biofluids. And I think one of the things that uh, kind of stands out is you've really done a lot of work with hyphenated and, and multidimensional mm -hmm. separations. So for example, integrating extraction techniques um, as a front end to, to high performance separation methods. Mm. And, and most recently you've been spending a lot of time working on Organize, which we'll get into in more detail later and the idea of organ on a chip, which I think is really fascinating as a way of mm. coupling biochemistry and physiology of these organs or these cells with analytical techniques such as separations and mass spec uh, as ways of interrogating what's going on. Mm. Um, 
And just a couple more things. One of the other sort of patterns I noticed is that uh, I think you, you don't shy away from being provocative, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> so for, for people uh, <clears throat> that don't know you, just calling out a couple of article titles here. <laughs> One that I really appreciated was Those Who Can Teach, <laughs> which is a play on the, the way that's usually uh, spoken about. And then uh, Theranos, what did analytical chemists have to say about the hype? Mm, yeah. Uh, so uh, one final personal note here before I ask you if this is all right is that uh, I, I've kind of been an admirer from a distance since the the mid-2000s, I guess, because we were, I also finished PhD in 20. 2007. Okay. And right. I think we were yeah. sort of both publishing on multidimensional separation yeah, yeah, yeah. topics at the time. And I, oh. I know I've several, I cited those, several of those early papers many times. So uh -huh. cool. it was so great to, to finally meet you last summer at the HPLC meeting, uh, HPLC meeting in San Diego and, and really looking forward to seeing you again in Dusseldorf. So before we go any further, did I, did I make any mistakes there? Is that No, all, that sounds, right? uh, okay. I'd say that sounds, uh, sounds all, all right. I, w I think though, I would also though, Add and we might get a little bit into that. I think also um, a key kind of uh, theme in my uh, in my work is I've 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 had the pleasure of uh, doing a lot of applications uh, uh -huh. to these method methods and hyphenations and stuff like that. And I've all, always had the pleasure of you know working with biologists and psychology researchers and and doctors and stuff like that. So I've I've always had some kind of cool uh, application to uh, to work mm -hmm. on, and I think that's always been a real fun part fun part of the of the job. <laughs> yeah, for mm. sure. All right, great. So um, as a way of kind of getting into things, one of the things I'd like to do in these conversations is just talk a little bit about uh, how how you got to the point of being a scientist. I, during the pandemic, I listened to many science podcasts. And I've always been really intrigued to hear about sort of the early career defining events of different people because mm. people take very different paths to these things. And so I guess the first kind of question for you is what, what events do you point to that really increased your interest in science and really got you into the sort of higher educational uh, vein? Yeah. Well, you know, um, well, you know, like starting, if I, if I go, you know, back to high school, then you know, I was always, you know, kind of, uh, you know, set on, you know, going to college and stuff like that. And, and my, my dad, he was a social worker and, um, and, you know, so we, we talked a lot about like psychology and stuff at home. And, uh, I kind of, you know, I really enjoyed, you know, the, the topic of psychology. And, uh, so I started studying psychology and in Norway, when you, when you start studying at least, you know, back in the day, then, you know, you would like study one subject, you know, and that would be psychology for one year. And then you go to another, it'd just be, you know, hundred percent psychology. Um, thinking I was going to maybe become a therapist. Um, but then I, uh, then I started reading in the psychology curriculum. It's like, what's all this, you know, what are these neurotransmitters? And stuff? Like, <laughs> what's this, you know, that's weird. I thought we were going to be I thought we were going to be talking about Freud and <laughs> Erickson and, and Carl Jung and stuff, but, uh, you know, the introductory chapters of psychology is a lot of physiology and, and uh, you know, statistics, but also these neurotransmitters that really got me 
curious about chemistry. So mm -hmm. um, I didn't, you know, I didn't study chemistry in high school. So I was like studying like social sciences and, you know, uh, stuff like that. Uh, so, but I, I, I liked it so much that I, I decided to do, to, to, to do the plunge and leap into, uh, natural sciences and, um, starting with math and, and then, uh, physics and chemistry and, and I did a little bit more of chemistry, organic chemistry. And then that, that kind of made me feel like, okay, this is cool. I like chemistry. I, I don't need to go all the way into biology. I'll, I'll stay here. Mm. And, uh, and then it came to analytical chemistry and then I, then I really felt I, I had found my home. So, uh, so it was kind of, it, you know, maybe a little bit of an atypical, you know, route to do it, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, I'm, uh, and, you know, I've had some full circle on it that I also do have done several successful research collaborations with psychology, uh, researchers as well. So that's been kind of fun. I think the, the atypical piece is okay. I think it's, um, I, I have a kind of unconventional background myself, and I think it's, for, for students that are listening, I think it's really helpful for them to hear that, you know, it's okay <laughs> and even productive and constructive to, to take these meandering paths sometimes. So mm, I think it's another really great example of that. And so what about separation science specifically? I, I know for me, I, I did, really didn't, I found it very confusing actually as a, a when I was doing my bachelor's work mm. and it wasn't really wasn't until the, the graduate level and the PhD that I really fell in love with it. So mm. um, when did when did that really start to become uh, prominent for you? Well, um, I took an analytical chemistry course and the courses we have at the university also they're pretty they're pretty hardcore, you know. So mm -hmm. it's you know they you, the bachelor's students are pretty much thrown into the lab they have to schedule their own time for using the instruments and following mm. the manuals and instructions. And they have to, and they get samples with unknown quant quantities of the analyte and they have to make calibration curves, et cetera, and, and measure it. And if, and if they are not in within, you know, uh, a certain uh, percentage, then, you know, they have to do it over again, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's pretty, you know, um, pretty demanding. And I, but I really just kind of fell in love with, you know, all the, all the parts of it, you know, like, uh, you know, calibration and how, how to obtain the selectivity, you know, through, through separating these compounds that were seemingly almost identical. And, and, uh, you know, it just really, uh, it just really fit my taste. And, and also, you know, from, from when I was younger, you know, I would like build you know, model planes and stuff like that. I did. Hmm. did do I? Did you ever do that? You know, like uh, build uh, a little or, bit. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. Not not so, too much. Yeah, well, I I used to do. You know, you like glue these small parts and paint. You know, the pilots in the in the planes. Mm -hmm. And then later, I would you know I would do a lot of skateboarding and 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 you know, I would love to you know work with the with the boards with the wrenches and the screws hmm. and you know fine tuning the the trucks and the axles and stuff like that. You know, and so so this was you know kind of like a, it's kind of like a craftsmanship to it too yeah, you know right and and uh and i really like the you know the idea of you know working with your hands and your mind you know and uh, and i felt that analytical chemistry could do that uh in in a way that really fit fit my taste yeah nice yeah i think uh I think I, I was just thinking about a recent article I wrote for LCG magazine and 
sort of reflecting on what it what it is about the separations business that people that do it for a living are so yeah addicted to <laughs> and i i think there is uh an element of uh, what i what i wrote about there is sort of the problem solving element you know mm. the every new application as you spoke about before sort of a new puzzle waiting to be solved and so yeah i mean it's 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 i mean they're instruments you know and like uh it's like you know i mean you know a, a chromatography system or a mass spectrometry system or or even an nmr instrument these are these are instruments like i mean i'm a musician you know and it's kind of like you can't just you can't just give somebody an instrument and they can play you know Jamie Hendrix solo you know <laughs> i mean it's the tool you know it's the instrument but but you have to know how to use it and and you, you, if you've learned one song that doesn't mean that you know the other song you have to tune it you know you have to tune your strings to another or use other chords and stuff like that and it's the same with chromatography and and you know, you, you have to have a different approach or a different set of you know settings uh, for every application and uh, and i don't think any application is i i would not dare to say that one application is easy i think every application every separation has its difficulties just as songs are i mean people can underestimate how hard a song is to really play really well you know they think they might doing it well but there there might be several other layers underneath and that's the same also for chromatography indeed what are, what are uh, one or two events or accomplishments or discoveries sort of on the time scale of, of your career that you would point to that you, you're most um, sort of proud of or, or excited about? So stuff that I'm, I may be most proud or, you know, uh, proud to be associated with is, you know, when, when uh, techniques and methods that, you know, we've developed in our lab that these have been, you know, applied in other settings, you know, both in environmental and health and, uh, and other applications. I think that's really cool. You know, that, that stuff that, you know, you can, you know, spend a long time on being frustrated at and you finally get it to work and it works and it works and it works so well that other people can use it. I think that's really cool. And, uh, so stuff that I've done is, you know, is used for, um, environmental analysis it's used for diagnostics you know like for example uh, I have a I have a very close collaboration with the also University University Hospital for um, for screening of newborns you know and uh, using LCMS techniques for that so um, you know stuff like that is it's I'm really happy to see that it's kind of being used in you know for for society basically you know I think that's um, I'm really happy about that and uh and also i'm i'm really happy to see you know i've i've had a lot of students now and and i see that they're working in industry and in hospitals and they started their own businesses and stuff like that and you know chemistry and separation sciences it's really meaningful it's important stuff for for society and for you know man and womankind you know and um so i'm, I'm really happy to be a part of that but you know uh most recently now i think it's it's been my work on, you know, hyphenating the worlds of of of, of lab-grown organs, uh, i.e., uh, organoids and uh, and separation signs. I think that's one of the things that has been definitely the coolest stuff I've I've been doing. <laughs> nice. 
Yes, that's a that's a great segue into uh, sort of the next piece here, which is to to focus on that. So, um, I'm not sure that I I'm not sure when I first saw the idea, read about the idea of an organoid, but it hasn't been long, so it's pretty mm. new to me. So, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about sort of give us a little background and and just so you know, we'll put in the show notes uh, references to. I saw that uh, I was just reading today. Um, your track article on the, sort yeah. of the review on organized. So we can put in references to there. If people want to go read about it, but if you could just give us a few minutes of sort of uh, what organized are and, and what's really driving the interest in this, uh, this area right now. Yeah, sure. So organoids are essentially uh, lab grown organs. So, so you can take like cells, you know, you can take uh, like cells from a patient or a patient group, and uh, and then you can you can kind of push them in the direction of of developing into miniature organs, and and these um, these mini organs, uh, as they you know they can be loosely uh, referred to as, uh, they can be like liver or kidney. They can even be like brain models, you know, where you can study how neurons are interacting with each other. So. Being able to make these miniature organs, it's almost like, you know, making miniature versions of of the patient, him or herself, you know, like small, small versions that you can, you can test drugs on. Let's say that you have a liver organoid and, and you can test drugs on that to see how your, you know, your liver is programmed to metabolize these drugs and so forth. And, and this is a, this is a way of, potentially doing a lot of high throughput screening for drugs that can be done in a very personalized fashion. And uh, they might also uh, have the uh, possibility of uh, representing humans or patients in a more accurate way than, for example, an animal model. You know, because obviously, you know, rats and mice and so forth uh, have been and are and will be extremely important for, for drug development and other studies but we see that they don't necessarily represent human physiology that well, which can give us, um, you know, dead ends in, in, you know, stages when you think you've gotten a drug candidate, but it's, it's just all wrong when you test it with, uh, with a human. And in addition, you have, of course, you know, ethical considerations with, with animal research, uh, which, uh, which is probably being shown to be in effect more and more, you know, for example, the EU, uh, the European Union is being more and more restrictive on what you can do animal models for. And and we've also seen that uh, the FDA uh, has now also uh, gone in for not having to have uh, mandatory testing of animal models in drug development, which then invite to other models such as organoids for testing. So organoids is, 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 is an exploding field, both in fundamental research, for example, in developmental biology, but also within industry and uh, like the pharmaceutical industry, which is also uh, putting a lot of prioritization on organoids now as it can be used for, for a, a wide range of, of studies. Great. And what are some of the uh, 
So, so I guess what would you point to or how long would you say you've been actively working in this area? Um, well, let me see here. I've been working on this about maybe about five years, okay. four or five years. Uh -huh. So this has been with, uh, this is in collaboration with my, uh, my very good friend and, and collaborator, uh, Professor Stefan Kraus. So he's, um, he's a, uh, he's a professor at uh, the medical faculty and he was also one of the pioneers in the discovery of uh, hedgehog signaling, which is a very important process in, in developmental biology. And he's also uh, really good in drug uh, discovery and drug development. And, and we kind of went into this, uh, this field of, of organoids together and uh, it's been really fruitful and, and there's just such a bunch of multidisciplinary, uh, you know, uh, bits and pieces in this. You know, we're, you're working with doctors and biologists, chemists, physicists, um, ethic, you know, ethicists, and even even musicologists. You know, music oh. scientists. You know, because uh, modern music science, there's a lot of emphasis on using sensors for for mm -hmm. you know, like uh, tracking movements towards the. Uh, you know, rhythms and so forth. And it's just amazing to see how, how this is such a multidisciplinary field. You know, it's just really fun. Yeah. And so in those five years, are there um, one or two uh, sort of major advances you would point to as sort of highlights in that during that time? Well, uh, I think, you know, um, organoids has, has kind of had like a continuum of of becoming more and more advanced you know because i mean these are still like kind of sketches of organs they're not perfect you know in any way but they're getting better and better uh for example one um sort of like one limitation has been vascularization because it's not that easy to to grow you know blood veins you know in the lab in a lab dish right uh which has also been one of the things that has um that has limited how big these organoids can actually get, you know, but that's, that's an ongoing field that is, that is going to lead to a lot of breakthroughs. But I would also like to, you know, I'd also like to point out that the, uh, the development of lab grown um, islets, which are the parts of the pancreas that, that produces insulin, that you can start to grow these and that these can, you know, we're going towards where you can operate these into patients, you know, so that they can then produce insulin, uh, you know, that the body does it by itself again, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so now we're, that's like one example where we're seeing that these organoids are actually, you know, seeing, uh, doing real work in, in within real patients, you know. So, uh, and also I, I would also like to, uh, you know, uh, point out, you know, that uh, organoids being being uh, integrated on microfluidic devices, you know, like organ on a chip, that is also, uh, we're seeing major breakthroughs in that field as well. Mm -hmm. You know, where you can put, you know, one type of organ and you connect it with another type of organ uh, through these, you know, chip devices and you can see how they're interacting with each other. And then I get to do all the fun i can take samples from this and do the lcms analysis and whatever so it's mm -hmm. a it's a major playground for me <laughs> yeah it sounds really exciting 
And and so where do you see uh, this going in the near future? What um, if you look into your crystal ball a little bit? What kind of uh, developments you see here in the near future? Well, I mean, uh, if I think we're going to see that you know organoids and organoid chip, it's going to get get more and more into high throughput. Mm. You know that we're going to we're going to see a lot more you know systems where we, where we want to see a lot of fast uh, results and fast analysis also. And and the analytical part is, is I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit in that context. Cause you know, you want to do pharmacokinetics, you know, you want to do omics, uh, you know, metabolomics or proteomics or whatever of these samples. So, so, so I think that, you know, we're seeing now that separation science and mass spectrometry is getting a more and more of a prominent role in the study of of organoids so uh, and i so i think we're going to see a lot more analytical chemistry in in organoid research yeah. and that's good for us you know because uh right. then we have cool stuff to separate and um but i think also in that context then we might see you know more hyphenations of organonic chip coupled directly to you know, uh, liquid chromatography or mass spectrometry so that we can do, you know, on-the-spot uh, measurements of what's going on in these organoids. Super. I I haven't looked at the program for Dusseldorf close enough to know, so are you are you going to give us an update uh, in June? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we're going to... Great. We're going to be talking about uh, all the stuff we've been doing the last, uh, last year and also before that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, the next thing I wanted to move into, sort of one of the questions I, I had to you uh, for the program here was sort of thinking about uh, like in, interesting or other interesting or impactful trends that you see in literature at conferences. And one of the topics you highlighted was uh, forever chemicals, yeah. which uh, also sort of brings things full circle Absolutely. For you, since that was one of your early topics. So um, can you kind of give us an update on your thinking on that? Like, yeah. um, what do you see that's going on? And, and uh, what do you think are maybe some of the challenges or, or what we might see in that area going forward? Yeah, so I was, you know, I was, uh, I had the pleasure of, of going to, um, to a joint conference that was in, in Cambodia uh, last oh. year. So there was both you know, um, UPAC, um, you know, sponsored a conference, which was, you know, very related to environmental chemistry and, and forever chemicals. And there was also uh, conferences, you know, related to separation science, which was uh, co-chaired by uh, Franta Furetz, who is, mm -hmm. who's a really fantastic uh, guy. Um, and I really liked the, the, the idea of the joint conference because, you know, you, you, you get to kind of pop in to to meetings that you maybe wouldn't have normally gone to, and uh, and so I was like gonna go in and kind of catch up a little bit about these environmental issues, like with these uh, perfluorinated compounds, and it was it was really disturbing, you know, to see to to understand and learn how persistent these are, how how they're everywhere, you know, they're in our oceans, our river. They can be in drinking water, and and they're definitely in, in our in us. You know, right. I mean, uh, there are in 
uh, my colleagues say that it's you know it's hard to find a blood sample in a Norwegian blood sample that does not contain these types of uh, chemicals you mm -hmm. know and we don't know enough about them you know they can be I mean they've been associated with a, a whole bunch of uh, bad stuff you know um, you know liver disease or diabetes and you know cancer all kinds of stuff but it's um it's hard to really you know it's hard to really study their effects you know also considering that there's literally potentially thousands of these types of compounds right and um so you know one of the things that to do is first we need analytical chemistry to be able to identify these compounds and new compounds you know and uh and then and then you have to have the collaborations with multidisciplinary teams to to see how are these compounds um you know affecting us and our bodies and our our our, our world and our children and you know everything you know our development and and then it you know that kind of brings me a little bit back to to the challenges with how do you study chemicals chemicals in a biological system and you know you can you can of course apply chemicals to a cell culture or you can apply them to animal models and you might take samples from humans but it's it's kind of hard to do you know systematic studies with humans with with you know poisons mm -hmm. so uh so that's kind of where i i i'm thinking you know i you know it'd be really cool to you know use these organoids and, and and study how how these uh these forever chemicals are are affecting our our organs and and doing this in a in a systematic way or at least as systematic as we try to do it you know this is all very beginner stuff so i'm sure we're going to make a lot of stupid mistakes along the way mm -hmm. but but definitely this is i think you know looking at environmental chemistry and developmental chemistry together and, and merging those with analytical chemistry, I think that's there's gonna be a lot of important stuff that can be done there, you know. I mean just, just stuff like I mean one of the one of the, the uh what's sort of for it, uh criticisms of organoids or or the you know is that they they don't necessarily represent a fully developed organ, right? But you can say that they develop they are represent a, a developing organ mm -hmm. which i think is really important you know because let's take like a heart organoid i mean if you if you put on forever chemicals or whatever you want and you can see how how does that affect the development of the heart you know and that might give you also some hints to how this will also you know affect uh you know, embryos or, or, you know, other stages, you know, in a more systematic way. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And, you know, and then Dwight, you know, and the, the funny thing is, and then the, in the other room, they were talking about how great <laughs> perfluorinated chemicals were for, for other applications, right? Oh, they can, you know, so it's, um, unfortunately, these, these types of perfluorinated compounds are amazingly versatile, yeah compounds for industry and even separation science right but we just have too much of it yeah <laughs> yeah we have to be a little more judicious in our 
application of them perhaps yeah. well yeah so there's a lot of uh as you say a lot of great opportunities to to connect a bunch of these ideas there and i'm sure that's going to be really fruitful uh going forward yeah absolutely all right so the the final sort of main topic i wanted to touch on here is is challenges in separation science in a in a broader sense and in our sort of um, dis discussion beforehand here you had talked about um, kind of a list of things, including things like less reliance on mass spec in some cases, mm. the importance of simpler and yeah. portable and robust systems, and the increasing value of inline sample preparation uh, mm. to get rid of the the matrix in cases where we really know what we want to focus on. So um, let, let's just talk a little bit about a couple of these, perhaps. Um, mm. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on the idea of less mass spec in some yeah. cases, because certainly the trend is <laughs> usually the conversation is more mass spec, not less. So. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, uh, yeah, more mass spectrometry, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's been, uh, that's definitely been, a, uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, love mass spec. I love it too. You know, I mean, I use it for, you know, for proteomics and, and metabolomics and stuff like that. But, but when you, when you talk to people within the Oregon on a chip field who are not chemists, but they're making, or, you know, they're, they're chemists, but they're, they, they might be, uh, they might come from a different background like biology or, or, you know, physics. And I say, Oh, mass spectrometry, but, but that's a really big instrument. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, it's, it's really big. And it's like, yeah, I, you know, uh, it's, that's great. But, I would really love to not have to have it in the lab, you know, can we do it simpler, you know, because I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, I guess, you know, because if you could, if you could uh, do stuff without the mass spec, then you might be able to do analysis within the same lab that's, that's going on with the, with the organ on a chip systems and not having to send samples to a core facility and stuff like that. I'm thinking, okay, so if you have a, if you have a biochemistry or biomedical lab, whatever, you know, they have a lot of plate readers, you know, and microscopes, and even Raman spectroscopy is, you know, pretty, you know, simple systems, you know, mm -hmm. relatively simple systems. So, so why not, you know, have simpler stuff with separation science, you know, uh, so that, uh, that more people you know, skilled persons, of course, you, you can never be a newbie in this, but could, you know, have more access to simpler systems uh, for, for simpler applications, you mm -hmm. know. So, for example, if you had an organ on a chip and you wanted to look at drugs and a couple of metabolites in an online fashion without having to have a, a million dollar mass spec, you know, in the same hood as your organoids, uh, then uh, maybe you could do that with a simple you know, LCUV system, you mm -hmm. know, and that's kind of, that's kind of the thinking I've been, you know, getting into, but of course, you know, the problem is that organoids and organoid matrices and so forth are really complex. I mean, mm -hmm. it looks terrible. You know, mm -hmm. if you do a gel electrophoresis of what we've been injecting, it looks horrible, you mm -hmm. know, so, so that's why you also have to have a nice, simple, uh, extraction sample prep part as well to get rid of all the stuff you don't want you know the proteins the salts and so forth so that you can only look at 
as as long as far as you can at least you know your your analytes of interest and then have a nice simple separation and detection system mm-hmm. i think that's uh i think that's uh, one of the ways to go and so i i think that a lot of people will be more and more interested in separation science because all the answers it can give that the regular biology toolbox doesn't but then we have to kind of look at stuff that's not only mass spec and you can so then you have to have good sample prep good chromatography and a really nice uh, accurate uh, robust detector mm-hmm. you know and i think it kind of sounds old school right you know but uh, i think uh, i think we're going to get a little more back to that i think that's and i think that's going to be a really um I think that's going to open up a lot of cool stuff for us separation scientists. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's going to be uh, make for some rich conversation. I, I've heard through the grapevine. <laughs> I actually haven't confirmed this, but I've heard through the grapevine that there's going to be some sort of uh, like panel discussion at the in Dusseldorf about sort of two-dimensional chromatography versus mobility mass spec so oh yeah that'd be a great example of a that of is a, of a conversation mm-hmm. absolutely i think uh you know liquor chromatography you can do it relatively portable you know systems and you can you can do it within pretty small units which it's it's i mean it's quite an elegant approach and it's it's not as expensive as a as a mass spec at all you know, and I, and I think that these are things that are we're going to see. I think we're going to see more separation science, not less. That's mm-hmm. I think that's basically the conclusion I'm getting from from seeing the more biology side of, of things on this. Sure. Mm. Great. Well, thanks for your thoughts on that. So completely a different topic. But one of the things that I noticed reading through your publication list is that you've uh, published a, at least a handful of articles as as. Uh, preprints and i think yeah. bio bio archive and i'm really yeah. interested to hear your hear your thoughts on that and your experience with it i'm a sort of a late comer to that i guess relative to some people but we've in my group we've started publishing in in chem archive yeah um and it's been nothing but positive for me mm. so far so mm. um what what is your experience with that been like yeah so i was uh you know I was a pretty big fan of like open access publishing. So I, I was pretty early in, you know, using like plus one and scientific reports and, and stuff like that. And also in that time, you know, we started seeing the possibility for publishing preprints. And uh, I just, I just kind of immediately liked that idea that you can get your manuscript out there as soon as you can uh, so that people can see what you've done and, or, or maybe even more precisely what you're doing mm-hmm. because a bioarchive preprint or, you know, chem archive or med archive or psych archive, you know, you can update these, um, preprints as, as you're getting more and more results. And, um, and this, and this kind of, it kind of, allows the community to see what you're doing and it also it kind of gives you the copyright to your results right because you don't mm-hmm. get scooped because you get a you get a doi a doi yep. um so which is able to you can uh, you know use you can cite and so forth 
so it's out there and and then a lot of people say yeah but you know i mean won't the publishers hate that you know that it's already out there and, and no actually not american chemical society elsevier wiley nature you know all these places uh they uh, appreciate and a lot of times even endorse the use of preprints uh, prior to uh, submitting to their journals for uh, for peer review. And actually, it's uh, it's a pretty nice tool because, like, if you're writing a cover letter to uh, a journal, and let's say that your preprint has gotten a bit of interest or comments. Uh, then you can write them a cover letter and say, "Hey, it looks like people like this," and and uh, maybe even somebody's even tried the the method and it, it seems to work, so it's already mm -hmm. kind of getting a bit validated. And uh, it kind of makes things a bit more transparent, puts a bit more trust in it. And I would, you know, to be honest, if I was an editor of Nature, I would actually, um, or science, or 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 um, you know, people who have that type of budget, I would, I would also almost make it mandatory to have as a preprint, because um, uh, you know you can screen for a lot of you know fraudulent work. That's that you know you can catch things that aren't um, you know that are just plain wrong, you know, or have technical mistakes, and then you get rid of all the you know. Um, the faulty science before it reaches the final uh, version. Mm -hmm. So I'm all in. I'm all for it. <laughs> okay, great. Well, it's certainly uh, another evolving area, and it'll be interesting to see how things equilibrate here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the next several years. Mm. All right. So now with these episodes, I like to close things with uh, some, let's say, shorter tidbits of advice and and thoughts. So I have a couple of short questions that we agreed on here. So first one is um, the best analytical advice ever given to me was. Hmm. So uh, I think, you know, like the best analytical advice I got was also um, related to, you know, also science in general, but maybe even life in general, you know, and it's the quote, you know, the truth will set you free. I think that's that's a, I think that's a, that's a really powerful, you know, sentence. I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's from the Bible, and it's it's you know, it's from it's in a different context. Uh, but I, I I still find a lot of, you know, great value in it. Also, in a, like a non-religious way, you know, I think that, you know, telling telling the truth and being very open about the truth, I think is is an extremely powerful strength to have you know because and i'll give an example like if you're writing a paper for example and and um and there are faults in your method you know there's something that's not you got weaknesses in your method you know um i mean if you if you try to not write about it <laughs> then it's gonna that the paper is gonna look the, the the wording is going to be terrible and it's not particularly ethical to like you know shove all the the bad stuff under the under the carpet but my experience is if you're completely honest about what is the limitations of your method and your approach then the writing just becomes so much better you know and uh and the reviewers appreciate it 
and and the readers also appreciate it because you're seeing that you know you're being completely frank about what is what is your work you know and also if you're a, if you're a student and you're afraid that your supervisor isn't uh happy with your results you know then it's it's always the best to you know just just be totally honest about it you know it's like this isn't it's not working you know i mean come on it's chemistry you can't take chemistry personally even though we do it <laughs> you know but it's it's okay you know things you know just just be and but then also supervisors also have to be very you know uh, encouraging for students to tell the truth because you know you know there's all this stuff about positive versus negative results mm -hmm. but you know i i don't i don't um i i think that's you know somewhat exaggerated you know the how bad negative results are and maybe maybe do i could i could i give you one example of that because yeah, that sure. might be good for yeah, students yeah. also mm -hmm. to see and um we wrote a paper we were writing a paper once about trying to combine nano lc uh with uh, a particular uh um type of sterols and it, it it was it was it just it went horribly hmm. you know because these sterols were sticking all over to the columns and the electrospray mass spec uh spectra they're horrible you know just absolutely awful but uh and we were like oh my god this is awful yeah so, uh, but let's, uh, let's, uh, let's write a paper about it because there's a lot we can learn here about carryover and stickiness and, and, you know, the importance of, you know, how, how to handle these particular compounds. So we were, we were, um, we were excited to see what the reviewers were going to say about this, you know, so-called negative result. Uh, but, uh, but so then I heard the, I heard the yell from my PhD student. Uh, and I knew, okay, that's when the when the reviewer came back, <laughs> and and the reviewer two had positive com uh, only had positive comments, but reviewer number one was the best. He or she wrote, "An excellent manuscript tells us the bitter truth," <laughs> mm -hmm. and I was like, "Yeah, you know, that's that's so good, you know, because you know you can you can be totally honest about what you're doing." And and that's what's going to get you the furthest, I think. So the truth will set you free. I try to, we t we say that a lot in our lab, and I think that's uh, that's the best advice that I've gotten and that I can ever give anybody. That's great. I think once you get over the pain, uh, whatever pain is involved, and it's quite liberating for everybody involved. I think. Oh yeah, I, I mm. agree completely. Yeah. Mm. All right, so then uh, last question. If I could wave a magic wand and solve one key problem in my work, it would be? I would, uh, I would make sure that uh, the, the dreaded carryover would uh, just uh, disappear. Mm. <laughs> I, think, I think that, I think I'd actually, I'd actually um, rather have no carryover than any, the most expensive mass spec in the world, mm. <laughs> you know? I mean, <clears throat> I have I have former students who are working like in doping analysis, you know, and stuff like that. And I mean, or you know, let's say, you know, I mean, of course, of course, they got methods and and procedures for for catching these things. But you know, wouldn't it just be nice to just know that after the first injection, it would it would just be gone forever, you know? And um, also. You know, like uh, back to what I was talking about, these um, organoids that we're looking at, the insulin that is being, you know, secreted from these islets. Uh, insulin is so sticky, 
you know, it's it's crazy how sticky it is. And other compounds like oxytocin, I mean, it's just like the most simple peptide. I don't know how many researchers have gone into the field and say, oh, it's it's just a peptide. It's like the worst. <laughs> it's, Dwight, it's your worst nightmare. It's your worst nightmare. And uh, so, so I think that, uh, you know, I'm happy to see that companies like, you know, like Martin Gillar and stuff like that at Waters has been, you know, having some extra emphasis on, you know, uh, where is the where is the carryover uh, coming from, like the Fritz and so forth, and you know, taking a nice close look at that, or, or maybe not necessarily carryover, but also just non-specific absorption and, sure. and how this is affecting you know the start and the middle of of the column's lifetime. So, and I also think this is also getting into like the truth will set you free thing. You know, there is a such thing as a carryover. And we we can't just uh, we can't just look the other way. I think right. that's that's uh, that's at least one of the things I've been uh, that's been bugging me for uh, for my career so far. <laughs> yep, fair enough. Mm. All right, well, with that, I think it's time to wrap up here. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. We've covered a lot of territory, but it's been fascinating to hear your perspective on organites in particular and. I think this really seems like an area that's positioned both for tremendous growth and and also tremendous impact and and i think our listeners will really find this uh interesting so thanks for joining me well thanks a lot. it was a pleasure talking to you